0: What a joy it is to get to preach His Word see what God's doing transforming us. Um, We get to finish chapter 1 of Ephesians today in our 11th sermon through this great letter that God's ordained to be in the Holy Canon of Scripture. Um, We're going to be finishing by studying verse 19 through 23 in the sermon that I've titled The Power and Position of God. Let's look to that last part of the text chapter 1 together, and then dive in. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of our Lord. God is good to entrust this passage to us. We are in the middle of a prayer that Paul is saying over the saints that he's writing to in this region that surrounds Ephesus. Uh, We saw last week in verse 17 and 18, the beginning of this prayer, as Paul prays to the Father of glory for the saints, he wants them to know godly wisdom. And very specifically, a true and growing wisdom. Knowledge of God and, and a knowing of Him, uh, uh, the knowing in relationship—not just to knowing about, but knowing Him personally. Um, how sweet it is to to know Him all the more, to savor Him and worship Him and live for Him. Number two, he prayed to that the saints would know the hope to which God has called us. That that it's not a fleeting hope; it's not a temporary hope. It's a hope to that which he's called us. And he's clear in his scriptures to say that to those whom he called, he saves and justifies and adopts and sanctifies and will glorify. That God is true in all of his promises. Church, our hope is in his finished work, glorification, eternal life with him. It is a good, strong, grounded hope in the power and the work of the living god that it would be our hope and thirdly to pray he prayed to know that we would know the riches of god's glorious inheritance just how absolutely rich we are to know god to have relationship with him that he is our prize our treasure in the last part of paul's prayer he turns to ask the lord that the saints would know the power of god and the position of God in these final verses church Paul is praying for these things because they are good for us the saints to know and to know rightly and to know them truly I pray that we would rightly and fully know the power and position of God and it would change us it would motivate us that who God is and how he is at work What he has done, what he will do, where he's positioned brings us confidence and maturity in our faith in this complicated and often very hard time in life. That we are all the more grounded in a maturing faith and not in ourselves, in the Lord, and not in our performance or our circumstances, but in him. Look with me as Paul continues in verse 19 and 20, and picking up here in verse 19, we see that Paul asks the saints that we know the power of God, to know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Power is a multifaceted thing. It shows itself in physical strength. It shows itself in political strength, in social influence, in money, in spiritual powers many facets of power on display and surely the church in Ephesus and in that region had many perceptions of power in in what was happening at that time the massive temple diana is this huge ancient wonder of the world in its size and in and and, and and the socio political power that that its presence brought in the economy and and the movement of of the people, even in the uh, influence of false worship and and occult practices. There's a lot of display of of powers at work around them. Other groups had the political power and the money and the economy. The Christians largely were left out of that in that day and age where they lived. And so Paul is praying that they would know a greater power than what is temporary and of the culture. The power Paul prays they know and trust in is so much greater that he says it is immeasurably great. Think of that with me. We all can see God's power as it's displayed in creation, in what we theologically call general revelation, God's revealed himself, according to Romans 1 and other places, to all mankind through his creation, the evidence of a creator. And then we also see him reveal himself through special revelation, through the scriptures and what he's given the prophets in the days of old, that recorded in scripture for us to continue to know him, and he continues to reveal himself. But consider with me the uniqueness of general revelation, how he's revealed himself in creation, and that the display of the power of creation and creation at work under his authority is just a taste of his power. It's not fully his power. It's a taste of it. It's it's an outworking of it. So when we slow to consider the roar of the wind... Or or the power of of a wave that could grow to such a size that it would level a city. Or the power of the blazing sun. This is just a, a, a piece, a part of the creation, of the palette of creation, and therefore just a measure of what is immeasurable in the greatness of God's power. At one point, Job finds himself struggling with the sovereignty of God and how things are going, and so he he challenges God, he questions him, and God very famously responds to Job. In Job 38 and 39, you can read it in its entirety later, but in God's reply, he, he basically says, who are you created one where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth and listen to the artistry listen to the the descriptiveness of god as he just gives taste of his power at work i am the one he says who who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb Who made the clouds the earth's garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Who commanded the morning since man's days began and caused the dawn to know its place. Who sends forth lightnings that they may go and say to me, here we are. Who provides... For the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help. Again, these things that God has done in creation are not even the power of God. They're just the results of the power of God. God who sustains all things in every moment is surely immeasurably great in His power. The psalmist agrees and proclaims the power of God in Psalm 33, as well as many other places. We sang Psalm 46 earlier t- this morning. But Psalm 33, 6-11, through 11, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heat. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. He spoke, and it came to be that which once was not the power of God is a marvelous and mighty thing church Christian do you know the power of the living God in your knowing him and being reconciled to him as you navigate this life do you know and stand and walk in the confidence of the power of your God Do you see how nothing in all of creation stands as His equal or His rival? No, only one is truly omnipotent. Only one is truly all-powerful. The one true God. Amen? Paul has in mind a unique application of God's power here in this text, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Our salvation is no mere mortal effort of life and spiritual reformation. No, our election, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, much of which Paul has talked about in great lengths in the early parts of this chapter. If you've been with us, you've seen us study through that. If you haven't, I encourage you to jump on the podcast and start from the top and really understand the foundation that Paul's laid here in chapter 1. It's a high point in Scripture, Ephesians 1. Not only adoption, but progressive sanctification, preservation, unto glorification is a true and mighty display of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. Think about all of that that he has done and ordained to make a wretched sinner like me his adopted child because the perfect blood of God the Son was shed in my place and completely able to justify me so i could be adopted to persevere me through a world of temptation that i will be glorified this is a great gift a great work of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe specifically the power of resurrection in the next part of the verse we see the same immeasurable greatness of God's power that is toward us who believe is worked in Christ when the Father raises Him from the dead. Ephesians 1.20 That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Consider with me the weight of the resurrection of Christ. And what it means for all of mankind who believe in Him for salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.21-22 for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For clarity he adds in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All of us who are in Adam die. We are dead. Born dead, spiritually dead in sin, because of Adam's original sin. <clears throat> in case you're wondering if that all includes you, <clears throat> you, you are of Adam. We deserve death. We we are spiritually dead because of sin, because of our guilt of sin. We are separated rightly from the one who is life, God Himself, who is holiness. And yet, the good news is all of us, all of us who are in Christ are made alive. Because Jesus paid for the guilt of our sin and conquered death on our behalf. See the power of God on display in the swallowing of eternal death on our behalf. Later in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death! Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We are victorious in Christ alone, according to Scripture. Paul wants us in this prayer, as he's praying to the Father of glory. He wants us to see and savor this. He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That testimony of resurrection is really big. Why? Because when people die, they are dead. They're not sick. They're not Knocked out. No, they're done. They're dead. The, the, what Paul's praying for here is good news for us, to us who believe. And the knowledge of the depth and the width of the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus is life changing for us who believe. Because just as Jesus said, in John eleven twenty five 25-26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? When something is dead, it must be resurrected if it's going to have life. There is no spiritual life without spiritual resurrection. There is no spiritual life if Jesus did not resurrect from the grave. Paul makes this clear in Romans 6, 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Church, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This is the good news. This is the power of God, as Paul proclaims in Romans 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God... For salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 6.14 God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. If Christ is not resurrected, our faith in God's saving grace is futile. Because if He didn't raise His own son, how or why is He going to raise us? This, This is really important. If God the Father did not raise God the Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, He would essentially be saying, I'm not satisfied with your atoning work on behalf of sin and sinners. And if that were the case, then we have no hope for resurrection, no hope for atonement. This is what Paul is clarifying in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and we're still in our sins hear me today christ has been raised the the good news that jesus resurrection is real and has happened changes everything without resurrection there'd be no resurrection of our hearts and lives without jesus resurrection his atoning work for our sin on our behalf would not have satisfied father then we have no hope Paul is praying that we have a clear knowledge, a clear view of the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus. For those who would believe in Jesus, this is good news. Christian, do you live by faith in the power of God? In in the God of resurrection power? May we never lose sight of the As Paul states it here, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, not anything we did, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's that's the highlight of his power at work. That that would stir in us faith and confidence. Praise God for his mighty power. One more emphasis on his power before we move on to his position in the next part of the text. It is God's power, church, we are desperate for. For new life, for everlasting life, and for daily life. See, often we can be guilty of kind of feeling like, thinking we kind of got our Christian thing kind of tucked in, kind of handled our business for the week or the day, and then we kind of go about it. Like we got our charge, and then we're going to unplug and then go about it in our own strength. No, no, Christian, we're desperate for the power of God in and through us every moment, in everything we do, that we are dependent people. Unlike the prosperity-touting heretics of our modern age, the God-ordained writers of the Holy Word of God often taught marveled at, and even celebrated themselves that not their own power or accomplishments were worth anything, but instead it was their weakness and often their failure to do anything righteous that was, that was celebrated. Why? Because it reminded them of their dependence on God. It was only in their weakness that they were rightly and fully dependent on Christ through which God would display His power. Often, the power of God is more on display not in our accomplishments or power, but in our weakness. This is a regular emphasis of Paul. It's a regular emphasis of Scripture. We see it in the testimony of the unlikely cast that God constantly picked among the elite to be those whom He would do His greatest work. And Paul says it so well in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul responds to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A people of his own choosing that were given the important task of making much of his great name, not because of their resume, but because of the resume of another, of Jesus How often are we guilty of kind of holding back, sharing how we're struggling or where we might have been weak in something because we kind of want to keep our resume strong. We want to have people kind of, yeah, you're doing good. But it's actually when that weakness is revealed that they see us doing good. But how? Because of the power of Christ. They see Christ. They savor Jesus. It's the heathen that wants you to be impressed with their own resume. The Christian wants you to be impressed with Christ's resume. What the Lord simply requires of those He will use for the making much of His name is that we trust Him. And what He can do and what He will do. That we learn to surrender and let God actually use our insufficiencies and our weaknesses to make much of His great name in a way that wouldn't happen if we were the most accomplished or the best at what we do. Parents, even, even the way we think about how we want to lead our kids, sometimes we want them to see us as really be good at what we do. And, and yet, what are we teaching them? Not that we would be floozies and we would be lazy and we would, we would flounder, but that we'd be honest, that Where we're falling short all the time is our dependence on Christ. And so, see Christ in this. See a dependent man, a dependent woman on Christ. We have to be willing to allow God to flip our thinking upside down and see that it's not our stellar performance that He uses, but our surrender and trust in Him. Why? God is already the brightest. He's already the elite the richest, the most powerful, the best. He doesn't need us to do that. May we receive the word of God for us when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That we boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon us. That he's seen as the one who gets the glory. Now let's see Paul's prayer that we would know the position of God. Picking up in verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. God the Son, who is eternally God, is not only raised from the grave as He completed His atoning work and His sacrifice for sin, but He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. The throne of glory. See this clarity that Paul's bringing here. Less about a place, the throne of glory, a throne room. Surely a magnificent, wondrous thing. We we studied in the in our disciples' church Bible reading plan this week through the early chapters of Revelation, uh, as we're finishing working through the New Testament this year, and um preparing for a new year and in, in, in daily reading, and, and then that weekly study that we kind of write to encourage you in where we've read that comes out every Saturday. I focus this week on Revelation 4. It's a favorite passage of mine in early Revelation about the throne room of God, the power and the wonder of God we see displayed in Revelation 4 and 5. But what Paul's praying for here is less about a place and more about a position. A position that he is above all else. That we would rightly see and savor the set-apartness of God. Jesus emphasized the same thing as he taught the disciples how to pray. What would they have in mind as they went to prayer less about the, the fleshly things we like to think of, a, a, a God figure in a white beard on a throne, these, these man-made imagery, God whose spirit. No, we, he says, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The, the word hallowed there means holy. It means set apart. Not common. God is holy. He is set apart from his creation. Nothing and no one is like him in his set-apartness. Jesus is saying, Lifted high be your name, that we would see and savor your set-apartness. You are worthy. You are majestic. The first priority of the heart of Jesus in modeling how to pray to the Father is the height of the name of the Father. The set-apartness of God. This is what Paul's trying to help the saints bring to mind. The priority of the heart that we'd rightly acknowledge the position of God. The set-apartness of God. And let me just ask you this morning, is God set apart from or higher than everything else in your heart. Sometimes we get maybe a little tired with with the droning repetitiveness of that verse we just sang. There's no one higher. And yet, for many of us, that's actually what we need droning in our minds and hearts to remind us. Because there's a lot of things competing for higher, In our lives, that we remember as Paul's praying, there's no one higher. That he is set apart and he is worthy. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29:11. Yours, O Lord, I love this, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Sounds a little repetitive, huh? <laughs> for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. What about the the emphasis of the heavenly places we see in these scriptures? What Paul's praying for, Jesus' model for prayer for the disciples, what we just read in 1 Chronicles, that, that call to the heavenly place. Can we Understand that this is less, church, about clouds or harps or streets of gold. Again, it's not about the place. It's it's showing that he's high and exalted. It's about the position. It's about him reigning above everything else. It's a positioning of reminder for our hearts because we need it. Because in our sin, we love to make God smaller than He is and make ourselves bigger than we are. There's no one, there's nothing that is not under the reign and authority of God. This is what Paul builds on next. He, He says in verse 21 and 22, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's a pretty extensive, all-covering statement. In other words, there's nothing outside of it. There's no one who's not under His feet. He put all things under His feet, He says in verse 22. Let's delve into this. This is really good. Let's delve into the middle part first. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. This is an important clarity of the eternality of Christ. That that Christ, God the Son, is eternal. That God is eternal. In much heresy. Many people are coming to knock on your door to try to tell you that Jesus is not eternal. That's a gross heresy that they're proclaiming not to worship the God of the Bible when they say that. God is eternal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is, has always been, and always will be. There is no beginning, there is no end. That's what eternal means. Revelation 1.8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, and who was, and who is to come the Almighty. In his letter to the Colossian church, Paul has a very similar emphasis of the supremacy of Christ that Paul is also praying for here in the begin, of the end of chapter 1 to the, to the Ephesians. It's this amazing and awesome similar repetition of words that we see in this chapter 1 of Ephesians and chapter 1 of Colossians and why? Because in his letters to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, he, he wants them to get this. Colossians 1:17, "He, speaking of Christ, is before all things. Jesus himself testifies to the eternality of Christ, God the Son, that he does not have a beginning. when in John 16:28 he says, "I came from the Father, I have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world to go to the Father." If you want a little more round clarity on that, in his prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 5, Jesus says to the Father, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is good news, church, for us. This isn't just theological fact, it's good news for our souls, for our lives. That we would see and savor the superior position of God and see that that superior position is unchanging. Go with me here for a second so you can see this hopefully in its fullness. How many of you know people, or are guilty of this yourself, in getting really caught up in your favorite leader losing his or her position? And then what is it going to be like? with someone else leading, right? That really can undo us. Boss, president, other coach of your favorite team, whatever that is, we really get really worried about what's next. Is it all going to fall apart? Uh, Christians don't have this problem. Why? Because our leader is eternally positioned above all, reigning over all, before time, for all of time. Amen? Amen? See the confidence that that gives? We who are in Christ, this is what Paul's praying for. He wants us to know that, have it, savor it. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hold on, let me read it again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's so good. Think about what that does to our faith on a daily basis, especially in the midst of life's hardships, that we know that the one who Whom gave us life, salvation, perseverance, protection, that he is unchanging. He's not gonna graduate out, he's not gonna retire. Our certificate, we're not gonna get there, and then our certificate somehow is null and void because that guy doesn't represent anymore. He's supreme, eternally supreme over all things. Back to what Paul is stating about Christ's position over all of creation. Ephesians 1.21-22 Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come, He puts all things under His feet. Again, see the correlation, see the similarity. Colossians 1.16 Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John refers to Jesus this way in Revelation 1.5 when he says he is the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This again is an emphasis of his supreme position over it all. This is what John means when he famously said that Jesus is the king of kings, and Lord of lords. In Revelation 17, 14 and 19, 16, Jesus reigns over them all. Jesus is the ruler of the kings and the presidents and the chiefs and the premiers and the governors and the prime ministers. And if anyone wants to get arrogant in their flesh, If the President of the United States himself wanted to say to Jesus, how can you rule over me? I'm considered the most powerful leader in the free world. I have my office by the election of the people of the United States of America, a sovereign nation by virtue of the constitutional inauguration and installation. Pretty impressive. Pretty good. But Jesus would rightly respond, we know according to Scripture, that he has his office as ruler over Anyone by the fact that I, Jesus, existed before you and your sovereign nation or anything else before anything else did. By, by the fact that he created it all and is the one who is upholding it all under his eternal rule at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, this mic drop, right? There's nothing, nothing, nothing compares. He's over it all. And Paul says to the church in Philippi that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10. And this includes all rulers and kings of the earth. Praise God that Jesus is alive today, presiding from heaven at the right hand of the Father over all the rulers of the earth. See God's position over it all. And understand that God ultimately controls who the rulers of the world are and who will not be. According to Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. This doesn't mean that every king that rules is an obedient Christian in their life or in their leading. That they honor the Lord in how they lead. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that Jesus... It does mean, though, that Jesus overrules their sinful acts and and even uses their sinful works, and even brings about uh, major working of His sovereign hand for His perfect will and plan. He's not thwarted by anything that any of His creation has done or, or does. The, the ways of God and His rule over all that governs is not simple for us to understand. And when we are confounded by it, one of the helpful things that I like to cling to is praise God that he's God and I'm not. Right? But to help us with this, we can and should say with Paul, as he says in Romans 11.33, mentioned it last week, we're saying again, he says, oh, that's not like added fodder. He really is just moved. Oh, the depth. Of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unscrutable His ways. What this means, church, for us in a practical sense, is it means we don't read the newspaper or catch the evening news the same way non-Christians do. We listen with the ears of Scripture. And we trust in the providence of God over the rulers and the kings of the earth to accomplish God's perfect and holy will. This is helpful for us to know this because it is God who makes nations great and destroys them, enlarges nations, and leads them away. That's Job 12.23. The reign of Christ today over the rulers of the earth means that he relegates what the kings of the earth do, sometimes holding them back from evil, sometimes allowing their sin to work out their evil. And we have to clearly, rightly understand God is not culpable for that sin. That sin belongs to man. God is holy and perfect in all of his ways. We believe these things because it's how Scripture speaks about who God is and how he works. We don't set the Word of God aside, and then begin to bring in an economy of our own reasoning. When we see evil rulers selfishly reigning injustice and madness over the nations, we who belong to Christ don't fold our hearts in despair. We pray in line with the commands of God to push back injustice and fight for what's right and what honors to vote that way. But we trust in, we rest in the sovereign decree of God who is supreme over it all. And I love this testimony. I think I've shared it before. Pastor John Piper one time had a, one of his members of his congregation come up to him um, at the uh, 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 a presidential election time. And, and this member was just undone. He just wrecked. Pastor, what are we going to do? This guy gets elected, it's over. We're done. The whole thing's going down. He was, just, he was just wrecked. And I love Pastor Piper's response. He just loves and grabs his brother. He just looks at him and he says, Are you a Christian? What does he mean by that? He, because Christ is your king you're under his sovereign rule you're his secured by his perfect power and work forever we're not undone at the temporary workings of this temporary place now on a side note can i be clear to to say what the rest of scripture says we're to be involved we're not to be inactive we're to vote we're to fight injustice We rest in the sovereignty of God and His rule. Our faith goes to work in that way. It's good for our souls. Because we live in a, a very secular time, do we not? The upheaval and evil and sin that's rampant in our culture the influence of our children, the influence of music and billboards and priorities even of governors and and states and law and movement of nations is wicked. But our hope is not in policies or policemen or presidents. It's in Christ. It's in the fact that God is on the throne and is righteously ruling and governing all things. But they are under his feet, as Paul says in verse 22. He put all things under his feet. That means they're ruled by him. They're, they're conquered. And that means we who are heirs of Christ, also they're ruled, they're conquered by us. This is Paul's huge point in a text you've heard many times that needs to just sing to our souls and pray it just... It means something even more to you today as a result of the time that we spent here at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians. But listen to it. Paul says in Romans 8 31 through 39, What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See how we join Christ in being heirs. nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? In the midst of all of this deep and painful and real-world hardship, we who belong to Christ are not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The conqueror has his enemies subdued at his feet. Conquered them. We could look at all the momentary suffering that we go through, all the ways that distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword might come at us. And it's ultimately defeated in Christ. It's temporary. Victory, our victory is won in our victor, our bloodied champion. It's conquered. But we're more than conquerors. So so what you really could see when we really dig into this church is it's they're not these things are not just in chains at our feet. We're not just victorious over them. They actually serve the cause. They're in service to the work and the plan of God. And he's often using the suffering of the saints and the hardships we go through not as a way of showing his lack of love for us, his love for us is that he has. Taken us in for eternity, but in moving through the suffering, the display and the hope of the Gospels on display for others to see and savor and believe, that's His work for a short time in and through us compared to eternity. They're serving us. And it's in this very text that is that famous verse that God's working all things for our good for those who love Him. And we trust in that. We believe in that in the midst of great hardship and sorrow. Our faith swells, it abounds because we walk by faith and not by sight. Because we see the position and power of our God and it emboldens that faith to go to work. Do you see it? You see it, church? He gave him his head over all things of the church. That includes us too. The body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, Paul said this to the Colossians 2, Colossians 1.18. He, Christ, is the head of the church, the body. The the, the Bible is clear. The ultimate authority and leader of the church is Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.4, Jesus is referred to as the chief shepherd among talking to the shepherds, the pastors of the church. Ephesians 5.23, Jesus is referred to as the head of the church. The one who reigns supreme over the church, including Disciples Church, is Jesus Christ. We are His body, and He is the head. We in all things are growing up into Him who is the head that is in Christ. We're going to see that in Ephesians 4, verse 15. So I don't reign supreme, nor do the elders, nor do the staff, or the group leaders, or our longest-standing members, nor does our tradition, nor does our constitution, none of these things reign supreme. Christ does. His living word is our instruction and command, our marching orders. We faithfully come to Him. And we've worked hard in the last 10 years to repent, repent, of, of all the, the modern movement of the church for programs and, and flashing lights and strobe lights and all the nonsense that we've added to kind of think we're going to make it better. We've done our best to, to strip that away that the word would be central, the making of disciples would be central, the exaltation of God would be central. And look at what he's doing as we, as we aim to be faithful to him who is the head. Christ is testified of and and at work today through the body, His church. The church is filled by Him, Christ, who is the one who fills all things. The implications of this truth right now are huge for us as we prepare to go today. I ask you this. What does this mean for your life? Every view, every relationship, every crossroad, everything in your life, church, He must have supremacy. The highest position, the highest affection, your highest commitment is to Christ. If you truly see the supremacy of Jesus, then everything in your life that once was primary is now very secondary. And the surpassing greatness of Christ is everything now. And it wrecks you. If the God you know is just kind of rounding out your life, He's just kind of helping your life be better. I've heard many Christians speak of God kind of that way, the church that way, Christianity that way. I wonder sometimes if they really know the true God. Because when you know the true God, He is everything. And He's in everything. And He lovingly wrecks it all. And what I'd love to see is that's happening among many of you. Who have logged maybe many years in the church or doing religious things, and yet God is wrecking you. He's doing some, some, some work in you in just about every area of marriage or parenting or work or family or daily priorities. And I believe the living God, when He's at work, He works that way. He's not like kind of sufficient to get in and grow us and use us, He's sufficient. He's supreme. That when Jesus becomes your everything, it changes your whole life. Will will you you will not embrace the supremacy of God if you are unable to relinquish the things you once held too high. And so I ask you again, is Christ supreme in your life? What is more important to you lately than Jesus? Do you submit yourself to anything more than him? Which side of eternity do you stand when it comes to the supremacy of Christ? There's only two positions. Eternity is divided between those who submit to Christ as Savior and Lord and those who submit to self as Savior and Lord. One has eternal life and one is guilty of their sin and deserving eternal death. If you are here today and you are not saved, the biblical command and my plea is that you confess your sin before the Lord and you turn from it. You turn to trust your life to Jesus, to be born again, to He would reign and lead and move. You would live your days no longer for yourself, but for Christ. And if you are saved, then we would abide. We we would walk in faith that the the truths of these things would motivate and move and mobilize our faith to testify boldly to prioritize Him in every part of the day He gives us. And if He gives us tomorrow, then we do tomorrow. The world's going to rage suffering death persecution will be real for us in the here and now but jesus has overcome the world amen and we belong to him let's pray father we thank you for this time in your holy word what a gift oh we're guilty of not cherishing it like we should you the living god have revealed yourself clearly through the written word and we just want to continue to be better students of it to, to cherish it to know it and we thank you for these opportunities you continue to give us to grow and mature testify the gospel that you would be saving the unsaved even here today those who are listening later on the podcast around the world that it would be your sovereign will in your time to to make a dead heart resurrected alive in christ and to sanctify and to and to motivate and to mature believers unto being disciples of makers of others testifiers of the gospel no matter the cost no matter the persecution because we don't fear the sword or nakedness or temporary tribulation no we we walk in faith for the living god and the hope we have in what you've called us to that we would truly know the power and position of you the living god and it would change us it would mobilize us it would convict and send us in a way that hasn't before we rightly knew that and embraced it And so we finish this morning just worshiping you and and lifting up your holy name, that we would behold you and exalt your name. That that worship and that exaltation and testimony wouldn't end with this song, but it would just begin in this week you are sending us out to. For your glory, for our good and others' joy, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.